Julia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. And as you probably have guessed it, every time I'm the one who welcomes you, it means Eric has left me to my own devices. But do not fear, Rob's here. So um, um, we, we kind of got this thing going. Uh, Eric is on vacation. Um, last I spoke to him, he was following an alligator in his in-law's canal, and we really hope he doesn't get eaten. Yeah, that looked pretty um, cool. It did look awesome. So, I mean, like, and I kept telling him, uh, I'm like, get it, dive on it, jump on it. And he didn't do it. So uh, I'll deal with that later. But um, no, Rob's here. I know. It's it's training, dude. We need to get him ready for Australia where he's going to jump on a crocodile. That's Alligator's true. Alligator's the natural starting point. I mean, it's it, you can't ask for anything better. <laughs> I don't understand. Okay. It. So, yeah. But Rob, how are you doing? You're back again. I mean, like, were you? I'm you good, weren't man. on last week. You were on the week before, right? Yeah, it was at least a couple weeks ago. I don't know. Everything blends together. We were talking. Dude. What was that with Randall? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, what coming up yeah. on eight years, man? I'm sure it does. Uh. <laughs> Why would you remind me of such things? Oh God. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah, dude. Um, so I guess this is the normal portion where we talk about what's going on with our stuff as well as the news of uh, the day. And I will throw out real quick that if you are listening to my voice right now live, you have till midnight tomorrow to submit your pictures for the calendar competition. If you're listening to this tomorrow streaming, if it's before midnight, you still got time. If you're listening to it Thursday, Contest is over. Uh, Eric and I will go through those pictures and we'll start picking out the winners for the calendar competition. It is not going to be an easy year, Rob. It is going to be bad. I was compiling everything. Um, normally, there's like one category where it's kind of easy. <laughs> None of them are easy this year. There's great pictures in coastals and IJs and scrubs. I mean, everything is going to be normally green tree python is the hardest one to ever get through just because they take really great pictures because they sit there and they're also really gorgeous animals and this year everything's bad i mean they sit there on a stick i know right they're little little ball pythons in the air but i don't want to say that i mean what um so it's this this year's going to be more difficult because i mean we got the 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 final theme one this year is animals in the wild i mean there's gorgeous field herping pictures of tons of different animals from tons of different parts of the world. It's insane. So this is not going to be easy, but if you, <laughs> did if Zach you put any in picture, from Indonesia? He finally put in one today. I've only been yelling at him through the radio oh, okay. for like a month and a half, but it's, um, yeah, he did. He put in the, the Timor from Komodo cause he's playing right to my on. weaknesses. Yeah. Rough scale's hard this year, too. Not quite Komodo, I mean, but I hear you, man. It, I hear whatever. you. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Um, but it's like it, 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 the, the rough scale's going to be hard this year, too. I mean, nothing's easy. So we'll see. But if you have not submitted your pictures, go over to the Morelia Pick of the Week. Read the rules because there were several pictures that, I, as I was going through today compiling, that were automatically disqualified, which was a shame because they're really good-looking animals. 
Um, just read the rules and submit your pictures. And then uh, if you win, you will, of course, be announced on the calendar. You get your animal in the calendar, and we send you a free calendar. And if you win Morelli of the Year, you get to come on next year and judge the calendar with us. So uh, it's definitely something to do. Uh, and, yeah, submit your pictures as soon as you can. Yeah. There you go. Right on, man. What's going on with you, Rob? Oh, not a whole ton, man. I've been excited for this show. I think this will be really fun. Uh, talking some Calubrid stuff. I want to talk Loxosemus. Lots of cool stuff. So I'm anxious to talk to these guys. All right. Well, let's stop uh, yamming our heads off then, and we'll jump straight to into the show, and uh, we'll go from there. And, Eric, you can listen to this on your plane ride back from Florida. Yay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right, Rob, All right, cool. Ahead. Let's see if it's working, Alan. Oh, God. As ever. <laughs> oh, okay, I think we got him now. All right, uh, Matt and Stan, can you guys hear me? Yes. Awesome. Yeah, we can. Oh. Perfect. Right, good. So you guys <laughs> it's that is honest to God not the worst delay that we've ever had. So it's. Uh, oh yeah, that was. It, it feels much worse as it's happening, but it, it's um that was really nothing compared to <laughs> some stuff that's happened I, before. I, so. I fear that you've had my mistakes like times where you like you know the longest um, one I've had. So, you know. Well, if there was it's a, a fear. Delay, we just have Rob talk about our collections in general. You know what? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so, um, obviously, uh, okay. welcome to Merlia Python Radio, guys. And... What was that? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't I know. That kind of cut out. But I would just say, hey, you Matt, did. let's you know start start the way we we always start the show. Let's okay. Have... Nothing. Go ahead, Rob. Okay. Okay. Um, just the way we usually start, which is talking about, uh, we'll start with you, Matt, how you got into uh, reptiles. Yeah, so I was always interested in um, snakes, frogs, turtles, especially going out, um, some of the nature preserves where I grew up in the Payless area in Illinois. Um, and when I okay. was a child, we used to go to Chicago Reptile House. And at that point in time, that's when, you know, Madagascar, was really bringing in a lot of imports. There was a lot of new stuff coming in. And the shop itself just always had a great diversity of animals inside of it. Um, my grandmother was actually a big inspiration on it as if I would actually read about the animal and learn about their care, natural history, we would often pick up an animal and bring it home and take care of it in the household, if you will, too, as well. Um, so it was kind of an inspirational leading point into what interests me a lot about these animals, which is the challenge and natural history of them. Um, but the one thing I was never able to have in the house was actually snakes. So big change in for the matter of the subject matter that I keep nowadays, especially. <laughs> so, which I'm sure a lot of kids have the same challenge. Um, but you know, if you follow your interests, you obviously can just keep growing that too as well. Mm-hmm. And totally. And, right uh, on. How about uh, you, Stan? 
Yeah, good. Okay. Well, mine goes mine goes all the way back to when I was five. We, uh, my family and I, were living in Houston, Texas, and my older brother and I found a uh, found an eastern hognose on a neighbor's driveway, and mm-hmm. the uh, the lady that lived there happened to be a, a, a school teacher, and she knew what it was and told us how to feed it and care for it and said, "Hey, take it home and and do so." Well, we we did, and. You know, as as anybody probably could have predicted, my mother had a fit and, you know, <laughs> called this lady up and read of the riot act. What are you doing sending my kids home to the snake, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but uh, this lady told my mom, she said, look, you've got three boys. You're going to have to deal with this. So you might as well go out and get some books and, uh, you know, and learn. And um, we we did that. And uh, uh, have I've had snakes for over 50 years now, pretty much ever since that. So, yeah, that's kind of what got it started. Awesome. So, right and, uh, you know, our, our interest just, uh, just kind of grew into anything that, uh, you know, it, it, I was pretty much comfortable as long as it had scales or, uh, or wet skin, it was, it was cool to bring in the house. <laughs> cool. It's a, it's, a, it's a broad spectrum. You could get away with a lot with that. So, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a big brush. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking herp wise. Uh, okay. So. <laughs> so, um, uh, I mean, what what is Stan? What does your collection look like now? Um, it's it's morphed through several different phases, but my wife is uh, has she and I keep a lot of stuff. I, I actually happened to marry a girl that uh, was interested in snakes before I met her, so I got lucky. But we <laughs> have uh, have kind of just let our interests guide us, and we've been into Lampropeltis and and uh, all sorts of rat snakes, Pituophis, uh, pythons, and boas of various types. Now we uh, primarily keep uh, different rat snakes uh both east and west uh, hemisphere and um we've got a few pythons the loxosemus the new world pythons uh some viper boas a couple of red tails just a mix of a uh, little of everything man nice and uh, and you know uh and some uh some oddball stuff we usually like to watch for something that's different and catches our eyes so we've been working with uh, some of the peruvian calico snakes the oxyropus for a few years now and they're uh they're they've been a lot of fun that is cool oh, very cool. cool and uh matt what's yours look like now yeah so um stan and i we kind of matched our collections a little bit here um okay some of the things that aren't in stan's collection yet if you will until the next box comes across or um <laughs> But outside of some of the, the rat snake species, um, I have been messing around with some of the different black rat snake morphs with Clint Bartley. Um, I've also been working with the Mahila genus, too, as well, um, okay. both Capensis and the cross so the different file snakes from Africa. Um, I recently picked up some of the red and black um, snakes from Africa, <laughs> too, as well, but it just kind of gotten into the hobby, if you will. Um mm-hmm. Still kind of working yeah. those out. Um, I just had a female actually finish her prelay shed before I started traveling this week, so hoping for something cool um, when I come back from travel at the end of this week. Um, but, you know, the, the rat snakes is really how Stan and I got our connection to as well. Um, so we've kind of been a bad influence on each other. I'm sure Stan's <laughs> wife couldn't agree more on that one. <laughs> that, that sounds all too familiar to me. I mean, I have stuff that Eric doesn't, and Eric has stuff that I don't, and 
it's very poor influences on each other. And then you throw Rob in the mix and it's just horrible triangle of, you know, I have rhino rat snakes and I blame Rob for that completely. So it's uh, <laughs> one of those things. Good choice. So, Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> like I said, I blame Rob. Um, but no, that's awesome. <laughs> Right yeah, on. Been, um, well, I know you know a lot of this stuff. Yeah, go ahead. It's just kind of grown more and more, especially you know Stan and I will always take a dive at wild caught species and try to establish them in captivity, That's and then cool. try to broaden out our bloodline together. Mm-hmm. So this way we can kind of spread those genetics. So should someone lose an animal, the other person has it too as well, um, just to make sure that we're not limiting. The, the population in captivity, if you will. Okay. And, I mean, it, do, do, do you find that that's kind of something – I mean, obviously, that's not as easy to – it's easier, I think, said than done when it comes to establishing. But, um, I mean, do you, do you kind of find it's a little bit more uh, – I don't want to say rewarding, but it kind of like – Satisfying once they – yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's go with that. Well, a little bit more satisfying than, say, you know, uh, finding something that's been in captivity for eons and eons and barely acts like a wild counterpart. I'll, uh, yeah, hey, Rob, uh, Matt, I'll, I'll kind of jump into yeah. that a little bit because yeah, I agree yeah, with Matt. No, it, it really makes a uh, it really makes a big difference to do that. It, it is, um, you know, it is a little sp- scarier sometimes to, to do that, you know, through the quarantine, checking them out and make sure everybody's clean and, and then, uh, particularly if it's a species that hasn't been kept very much, um, and uh, you know we're kind of trying to guess it, uh, you know what's going to what's going to make it happy, what's going to make it settle down and and establish. But um, it, it is. But we even try to do that with some of the some of the animals that we ha- we share in our collections that make become available from time to time, uh, you know through imports and whatnot, simply to strengthen the bloodline too. Mm-hmm. So, it, but to kind of answer your question, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really rewarding. And I think it, uh, you know, it, it adds an extra element of, of, uh, of fun to the whole, to the whole hobby for us, at least to be able to get something in and establish it, particularly if it's a new animal, um, then get it going. Yeah. Um, it, well, Owen, uh, Matt that, is one of the people who's worked with the Xenodermis, the dragon rest snakes that you love so much. I do because they're like armor-plated worms. It's like <laughs> it's it, and and I'm just I, I love them so much, but I'm so terrified that I'm gonna break it because it's like it. it do you kind of do you really enjoy that challenge? Because I mean, those no, things I've, I've seen, seen them. Yeah, at, yeah, I've, I've seen them at reptile shows, and people have been like, "There's always the one guy who's like, yeah, I got these in a trade, and I have no idea what I'm doing with them.' Like and all this other stuff. I mean, do you really kind of like thrive on that kind of stuff? I do. I actually enjoy um, learning more about the animals and trying to figure them out in captivity. Mm-hmm. That being said, I mean, you almost have to monitor new species to the hobby almost daily to kind of Ugh. change and adjust based upon that to try to make yeah. sure what is actually working and what isn't. Um, especially when in certain instances, you may only be able to get a pair, right? Um, where in those instances, it's almost like, well, one of them may die. So when's mm-hmm. the next time I'm going to find one? And that's why it's worked out really well. Because sure. Dan and I exchange those kinds of animals, especially captive, 
um, animals produced. But I mean, sure. those are challenging animals. That's for sure. Is it the frog thing? Because I heard that yeah. it's that they eat tadpoles or live. Give Owen some insight into into what you put through into those and what what seemed to work maybe. So he'll never oh, touch them I mean, again. So he'll never think about exactly. Them yes, again. exactly. <laughs> no, I, I told Rob, I was like, I'll never do that again. Um, oh, it's that bad. <laughs> well, you know, a big part of it, I think, too, is the state of the animals that you get. Yes. Right. If you're getting. Yeah. Animals that are fresh in for it, have been taken very well care of, or if you're just getting something that might have been heat exhausted, dehydrated, and has bounced from place to place, chances are you're not going to have the best survival rate on those. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they are a, they're a care-intensive animal. Um, they're rewarding, very cool to have. Um, some people are doing very well with them. Um, especially those people that are familiar with natural vivariums, um, dart frog keepers especially. Um, and that's really some of the best people that have been having the most success with those, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I won't touch it. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's, and you are, it's, it's you're, so they're wanting amphibians and stuff, and even even maybe running water or something. You said. Oh yeah, my god. Um, yeah, I had him set up with running water too as well, just to boost the humidity too inside of the cage. Um, they seem to do well with that type of setup. Um, after I had him, I had him for a while, and then I ended up moving on. I lost the female, and I ended up um, giving the mail away to someone else that had a pair and was doing really well with them. Mm-hmm. But they they were a care-intensive animal, in my opinion. Um, really, for the experienced <laughs> hobby, it's going to put a lot of time into it. That, But, like, that's got to be nerve-wracking as hell. <laughs> like, I mean, especially if this is something that there's only, like, maybe two or four around, right? I mean, how do you yeah, sleep you know, at night? Yeah, <laughs> I've seen a lot more imports of them as of recent. No I don't know if some of the quotas have been, um, you know, I, I see them. Quotas or the spots or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it could be they, they have figured out where their location is um, and where they're actually found, and those collectors are pulling them in because obviously that's a big source of income for some of these nations. Um, but they, if you could get them in great care, or if they've been established. Um, now, that being said, you know, a few generations down the line, that, that care might loosen up a little bit more. Um, so some of the people right. in Europe have been having great success with them. Um, but then again, there's a lot of people that have been working with them that aren't on public media, you know, mm-hmm. Facebook or anything. Um, and some of those people chat here and there, or send emails and ask questions and and people are doing very well with them that you don't see on social media, and a lot of them have taken some of those natural vivarium aspects um, from dark frog keeping, um, and also obviously having that productivity from dark frogs themselves. Um, they're able to feed those animals more readily, so food supply comes to be <laughs> as well. Um, so it, you know, if you're with some of these animals too, um, you know. 
biggest thing is getting them feeding. Stan probably can't agree more than that is just trying to figure out what they're going to eat <laughs> yeah. on and just try to get them going as best as possible. No, and what and what they're going to eat voluntarily and readily because uh, you know that's I know that's one of the challenges people have with new stuff like that or you know particularly something that's got a got a very specialized diet or mm-hmm. just uh, you know ba- babies that they uh, that they hatch or have every year you know trying to get them to eat but we 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 only use assist feeding as a very last resort so you know you try to do everything you can do to get them comfortable and settled in and get them feed them on their own. Is that just trial and error? I mean, trying like, here's a here's a gecko or here's a, a this that and the other thing. I mean, is it just like checking off the boxes and seeing if they take anything? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and no, I'm not. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, and I mean, reading some of Rob's old um, posts, even too, of the force feeding rhinos and stuff like that. I think. Rob, you've changed your mind on some of that too now. <laughs> yeah, totally. So. I mean, I, I think, well, the funny thing you mentioned the dart frog bit is I was thinking, yeah, man, maybe I should breed erratus again because I think the baby <laughs> rhinos love those erratus tadpoles, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And that, that would probably be a perfect solution. But I, I do think part of it too is just expanding. I think sometimes. Uh, captivity generally we we have this mindset or mentality that if it doesn't eat a pink mouse that it's somehow defective ignoring that we have it in a box right and i've become much more inclined to saying okay i need to accommodate what this thing is you know has millennia into it program you know millennia programming into it to do and not just apply my own oh you know this f1 rhino won't doesn't want a pink mouse you know a live pink mouse that it would never see um, you know, right. when it first hatches well, out, you know, I should accommodate that rather than just forcing the issue. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's like one of the biggest things um, that I take from locality, because I mean, it's a word of mouth, right? You're you really are thinking and believing whatever that end person who's telling you the animal sure. is that this is the associated locality, right? But with the way that you can go to weather.com or use your smartphone. I mean, it's a great resource to think about what are the natural temperatures occurring? Is it a rainy season? Is it a dry season? Because we're trying to manipulate our captive husbandry as close as possible as what they would be seeing in the wild. Um, And it can be tricky at times. Yeah. We uh, we, we run into that, uh, you know, Robin, what you were touching on as far as finding something else. Uh, you know, Andrew and I have been breeding the uh, the Aspera, uh, uh, Kendoya Aspera for several years, the Viper Boas. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of folks for years, those have come in grabbing things like that and have been a struggle for, you know, people have struggled with getting the babies deep. But again, we've been trying to get them to eat live pinkies. I mean, shoot, uh, the adults take rodents, you know, right away. But uh, we didn't, sure. didn't begin to have luck with those things until we figured out that they want live small frogs. We, we, Fortunately, down in Dallas, usually in January, because these things are born in, you know, for the most part, we get we have our ours born in December, January. Fortunately, mm-hmm. we've seen enough warm days that we can go out and collect cricket frogs or something along the on creeks or around the right. uh, around the ponds. But they, um, I, I have found that they will almost invariably take live cricket frogs when they won't take anything else. They won't take house geckos. They won't take pink mice. They'll take nothing. And uh, but what's unfortunately uh, unfortunate is you can't stock up on frogs in the freezer because they want them live. So it does key in on some, it's, it's <laughs> movement and scent that they key in on. 
sucks. And uh, <laughs> right. I, I mean, they won't they won't even take live scented pinky. We've tried, you know, uh, we've tried live pinky scented on frogs, and it's, apparently it's not the right movement because they won't take those. But you you lock mm. them in a little uh, container with a live frog, and and just almost all the time they'll eat. So. Um, but that, that's the challenge. Awesome. And, you, and once you get a few meals down and get them, uh, I guess, get the feeding response, you know, to lock in, then you have better luck moving them over to scented pinkies and stuff like that. So that, that's what we found. But yes, it's a challenge to find, you know, what they're eating. And, and to your point, not just sticking with our, you know, our concept that everything's got to be kept in a cage on pine bedding and fed mice. <laughs> um, <laughs> have, have you guys noticed anything when it comes to maybe further generations in captivity? making it, I guess, having a will, more willingness to actually take a frozen thawed rodent or something like that, where, you know, as you get further in, maybe it gets a little bit easier. Hang on to babies that feed for you readily. They're the ones who breed. <laughs> I, think there, I think a lot of it has to do with genetics. <laughs> that, yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with Dan on that one. Uh, you know, or... You, sh- you ship them to your friend and say, "I'm I'm out of luck here," and they feed their first meal for the, <laughs> on a frozen right? rodent. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things, yeah. But that doesn't make more, yeah, that I doesn't mean, make more sense. Stan, to the point you were making, I know everyone's super excited about the reptilinks and the scents and things, and I am too. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's definitely a step forward, but I do think it gets overstated as a magic bullet, particularly amongst python keepers. For the most part, you know, I know Antaresia are always considered the hardest kind of – Teresia and blackheads are the hardest pythons to start feeding. Mm-hmm. But relative to the stuff you're talking about, they're not hard at all, and it's sort of like you're just kind of – it's a little, enough of a click to get them over, but it, we're talking about things that need the unique movement as opposed to just being what it smells like. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, no, it makes a big difference. That's so that that's well, daunting. Especially, <laughs> you know, like when you're messing around with these new species where there's nothing published on them or it's all scientific literature, you have to look at stomach contents of animals and try to figure out, well, what did they find on this animal? Um, You really start to try to put together a bigger picture of it. Um, Because, I mean, for some of the stuff that Stan and I have been working with, there there really are no care sheets for it. It's Mm -hmm. really been a lot of um, trial and error um, and trying to put together a bigger picture of it, Um, which is kind of interesting, you know, like thinking about it we always get contacted, um, you know, do you have a care sheet on this animal and stuff like that? And try to explain <laughs> more in detail, like this is how the animal has to be set up. This is the natural history of the animal and kind of point people in directions to get, so that they try to be well-versed themselves before even trying some of these species too as well. People always take really well to that sort of commentary, don't they, Matt? When you when you message them like that, oh, yeah. well, you, you get your serious keepers, um, and some of those keepers have been the people that have had great success with some of these, um, especially conspicuatus from the Japanese forest rat snakes. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, there's there's not much out there um, outside of Kloss's two books. Um, there's here and there little snippets. 
um, where a lot of it has really kind of gone back to looking at natural history, where they're found, what kind of environment they're at, um, and trying to figure out some of those aspects. But those people that have actually um, received those animals, if you will, um, after talking, you know, we try to keep a continuous open conversation on, on care and husbandry. Those people are, have been doing great, and those have been some of the more rewarding, awesome. I think, people to work with. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, and as some context with the conspics, that's like something that 15 years ago, you know, they were just considered to sort of all die, and no one was really having continued success. Klaus maybe accepted from that, and now Matt's just mm-hmm. doing uh, – Going gangbusters with them, so that that he's sort of understating his own success there. I think when <laughs> with that, but uh, persistence pays he, he off. Really, he got he really it. So. He, he really is. But well, Rob, you a, wouldn't believe the amount of time he's uh, put into those like, things either. So, yeah. yeah, and it's helped to have Stan, especially you know, working with them too as well. I mean, him and I, we we shoot questions and ideas back and forth with each other, just trying to, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing this? Um, because really, I mean, that's that's the fun part. So. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's it, it's almost like a puzzle. Do you guys try to get in contact with people? I mean, like uh, Ari Flagel has been trying to figure out Bowen's pythons, and he constantly goes over there and does research and takes weather data and water data. I mean, have you guys gotten to that point where you almost want to talk to somebody who's over there or going over there to try to get insight into a species? You know what? So I've actually – contacted a couple of people um, in Japan and yeah. they actually provided some feedback on those animals. Um, That's cool. You know, you know, and I've gotten pictures and I forwarded them over to Stan and I'm like, check this out. Um, <laughs> I found one in a while. Um, but, you know, it it is pretty, like, you know, talking about like weather.com or the weather apps, even that has helped tremendously to try to figure out those animals or why during certain times of the year they're not feeding. Um, mm-hmm. Even though in captivity, your temperatures might be perfect, but they're not feeding. Um, and it's because it's 91 degrees there and they're not going to be active during that time period. So. Right. Right. Okay. That's cool. Very cool. Another topic that Stan, you had hit on earlier was, kind of the concept, generally speaking, of inbreeding. And I know um, that, Matt, you're doing some work with this. The porphyraceous subspecies have been uh, kind of historically from a really tight pool. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I know I've yep. started – oh, and actually, in, in Coxeye, I know I've seen um, basically a jaguar equivalent, in, you know, in terms of coastal carpets in these Coxeye with a reduced pattern and a neurological issue associated with it. Inherited as a dominant or incomplete dominant trait. Yeah, you know, um, I'm not, I'm still not completely sold on, and, and Stan, obviously, since you've read these two as well, comment on the cocci, whether sure. the, the vanishing pattern is actually a, um, a genetic trait that's passed on from one another, um, or you can selectively breed. Sometimes it will pop up. Um, but more importantly, I, I mean, the hard part, I think, Robin, you and I, we've talked about before, is some people have crossed some of these subspecies together. Oh, totally. And yeah. 
it, it's been tricky to actually pick them apart. Um, last year, I, I received a trio of crosses that had all four subspecies in them, and they're F3 generation. And, I, I mean, I'm not breeding them or anything like that. I have them in my collection because they were given to me because I was like, wow, this is kind of interesting to see what animals would look like. But you can, if you are familiar with the particular subspecies, you can start to pick them apart especially cocci. Um, cocci seem to be the most that have been crossed with pulcher, um, latisinctus, um, So, and you can usually tell by the cross band on their dorsal okay. pattern. So extending outside of the, the dorsal stripes, typically right. you've crossed it with another subspecies of it. So, and, and then, uh, no, and that, that really... All of that helps, and you can. I think some of them are, are, you know, particularly some of the integrates are a little more obvious, obvious, you know, like that was talking about than others. But uh, Rob, to your point, a lot of these species, particularly when you know you're dealing with something that's relatively new, you are dealing with a very limited, uh, you know, foundation. And I think yeah. the best you can do is as yeah, that's part of what's helped with having uh, with Matt and I working together on these is, you know, I can send him some of these critters and he can send me some that we can start working and breeding animals. So at least as you're building the popular your collection, you're not working from the same mom and dad. But then that's mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to go back to your earlier comment about the wildcard stuff. That's why we kind of uh, look for opportunities to bring in, you know, new blood. If there if there's right. any, any importers even bringing in a single specimen, you know, get something new. To inject into the into the colony so that you can get some new blood. Right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why I, I picked up those wild caught cocci a couple of years ago, um, <laughs> and this year I hatched out uh, two pairs. And right, I, I plan so. on holding those back. Awesome. Yeah, I hatched out two point two. Um, that's cool. And I'm I'm going to keep them back to just kind of strengthen some of mm-hmm. my bloodlines and and stands too as we move forward with it. Um, just because, you know, like Rob's mentioned, I mean, I've seen some neurological things, too, as well with the cocci in general. But if you really? go even further back, I mean, cocci originated from about five pairs that came through Bushmaster and then mm-hmm. pro-exotic purchase. Or, or, well, came through. In the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. In the U.S. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The wild caught original foundation, sold them over to right. Bushmaster and then um Exotics bought them from Bushmaster. Um, well, but the found the interesting bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If well, and that was the stuff that was here. The interesting bit is in Klaus's Soria article on them. You can actually it's either that or it's in the first book. I don't know, but you can see one of the cocci that he has is one of those vanishing pattern ones. Yeah. One of the wild ones he got. Right. Which is oh. pretty. I mean, I, I like that look, although to to your point now, uh, you know, that was sort of something that I wasn't even meaning to say in that context was that getting that wild-caught stuff, it, it, is, it does speak to getting actually what you're buying. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where I, don't, right. I wouldn't buy just a cocci from a random person at this point wanting, you know, and feeling assured that they are what they're supposed to be. Well, you and, know, it's interesting. When I hatched out those cocks, I called up Stan and I go, these look way crazier than some of the other hatchlings <laughs> I've had. 
Uh, Eloise. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh no. So I'm like, these are pretty bright orange in retrospect. Um, so it would be interesting to watch them develop and grow and everything like that, especially try to rebuild the foundation of those animals too. But and, and something though that Matt and I even okay. talked about when he when he was telling me about that is that uh, unfortunately, particularly when you're dealing with a species that got so many so such a limited number of animals from the wild and, mm-hmm. and so little uh, animals, you don't know if you're just dealing with population variation. I mean that's why yeah. you know that's like why right. gray banded kings were were described as three different animals when they first described. So, <laughs> totally. Yeah, you don't know if you're just dealing with population variation. So it it, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Well, and Stan will agree with me here. Whenever we pick some of these projects like this, it's almost trying. You you got to look and say, well, how many can I get? Because <laughs> you will yeah. lose some of those wild thoughts right off the bat. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's probably the nature of the beast there. I mean, and I, I remember when I first got involved in college, cocksiver were one of those things where if it was at a reptile show, it was a special weird thing and you know, I, I, you know, I think the people who were kind of mentoring me told me, don't touch it. You know, you'll, you'll kill it immediately. You don't know what you're doing yet. So, uh, it's kind of one of those things to see them kind of, well, I mean, not yet, Rob, I had other Robs in my life. (laughs) Rob's just, Rob's just the one who, you know, weighs in on Wednesday mornings, but it's, uh, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, now you kind of see them, uh, it's almost like somebody has, a pair and they breed them. And then you see once a year, their little acrylic displays are filled with like one tier is filled with little cockside babies. And it's yeah. just like that. So it's just one of those things where those are kind of popped up. And I guess what you're saying, well, those I, are I good. The funny thing, Owen, with those is those are one where if you lock them, it's sort of like you always say with hackies, how you can go from zero to 20. And the answer <laughs> to that is, yeah, people who really have them locked in can do that, but other people yeah. will get absolutely nothing. And exactly. these are the same thing. And you guys, you guys speak to it, you know, more so than me. But, you know, for, for me, it was all the porphyracia. Viantae are less productive than the rest, you know, as, as off the bat. Yeah. But, um you know, they, the rest of them, if you get them locked in, I mean, I've had six clutches of cocci from a single female. You know, and that could be a female that started laying eggs when she was 14 months old. If they're locked yeah, in, they Dan can do it, but other people will get food. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So, so. <laughs> Keep going. All right, well. So. Um, you know, you know, part part of that, uh, and part of that, Rob, Rob, I know, I know, and just to kind of touch on the Asian rats altogether is that yeah. the, um, you have to get you have to get this person that's thinking about them comfortable with the idea that look, you're not going to keep this in the snake room at 78, 82 degrees all the time. Go ahead and let the snake, you know, right. keep the snakes in the low low 70s on damp sphagnum moss, or at least with a damp sphagnum box all the time. Let them get wet. Um, yeah, that's that's why I think the you know so many of the uh, Asian rats had such a bad rap for so long. Um, right. We, we would we would get them in. First of all, the importers would bring them in, and they would just keep them in the, in you know a, a heated environment, particularly mandans and Mollendorfs. They they were cheap for yeah. years, and uh, the mandan rats and the and the redheaded rats would come in. Uh, they were real inexpensive, but I mean there were all kinds of theories about uh, you know about having organs removed, and that's the reason they all died within a month and different things. <laughs> right. I think oh once once we figured out that um, 
Oh yeah, there was. They, they used to say that uh, there was a surgical procedure where they could remove the gallbladder because they used it in medicine over there in Asia or whatever, something to that effect. And uh, and they would leave no scar, so you wouldn't know the snake didn't have something. In it. <laughs> the they were you know, exactly. yeah. make up excuses about why they died. But once we figured out that hey, these things, you know, you can. Uh, in fact, we're with most of our stuff. Uh, in most of the year, they're kept uh, between the mid mid upper sixties at night to you know mid upper seventies during the day, and yeah. um, we've even right. found that stuff feeds better. We have uh, you know with some of the things, some of the hatchlings, if you let the temperatures drop into the sixties, it seems like the hatchlings feed better than uh, than if you're trying to keep them too warm all the time. So you had to just get kind of comfortable with you know with not you know not corn snakes and ball pythons as normal. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like every, everything that doesn't fit into those pegs gets a bad rap for being a difficult species because I can't keep it in the same rack system that I have my ball pythons or my corn snakes in. And <laughs> right. it's like, right. that, oh, yeah. yeah, the kind of the thing there. So, uh, yeah. That's, and, 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 and you know what, Owen, I don't want, I don't want anybody to think that I, that I don't like corn snakes and ball pythons because as a matter no. of fact, I have both, both in my collection as well. So, that just, uh, yeah. but you can't keep. <laughs> but you have them in a different rack. It's like that's the whole they're point. They're in a different room. Them, yeah, they're in a different, there. Room, different rack. <laughs> exactly. All you got to do just, is convince oh your, ro- your wife that you need the, the entire upstairs for your snake collection. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pushing for a building. No one just has right to now. convince his oh, dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> the dog has no say in anything. But I, I, you know, I'm trying to convince myself that I need a. A farm and a building, and then I can really go crazy. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. You know what? Yeah, a, I'm still uh, trying a, to a, push a, that a, way out. <laughs> yep. A, a reptile curator, a very wise man, a reptile curator, told me years ago, "Don't you know?" He said, "He said it's a fallacy that you're going to build a bigger snake room and have more room to work in." No, because just, every snake room that right, you're just every cram snake it room that has yeah. ever been built just gets filled up with more animals. So, yeah. it, and it almost happens sure. immediately. You're like, I've expanded. Wait, why are all these cages full already? What happened? <laughs> like all of a sudden, you just have more smaller cages open, which just, it's bad. It's very bad. So, you know. Yes, uh, yes it is. Eugene Bissett told us uh, years ago, he said, just go get land, and then nobody can tell you what to do. And I'm like, as I get older, I'm like, son of a bitch, he was right. <laughs> it's like, you need to go get a farm and just stay there. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah. God. But that's nah, awesome. Uh, Stan, can you tell us a little bit? Uh, speaking of you know dealing with wild Mollendorfi, can you tell us about the the hypo and the hypo project that's come from that? Yeah, yeah. No, it uh, the the hypos have been uh, they've, they've been a, a challenge. Um, the the original animal was one that did come in from the wild. Uh, she was about a uh, just about a four foot animal that my wife and I got in, uh, in 95. And, um, we, we had her for a number of years trying to find a male that would, uh, you know, she, she settled in. We had, uh, had, had by that time gone through enough Mollendorfi to figure out that you do have to keep them cold and moist and things like that. So she was in a different room right. of the house. And, um, uh, we went through trying to find a male that we could, uh, could get established and breed with her. And, uh, and actually, Carl Crumkey had gotten uh, a, a friend and fellow rat snake enthusiast had gotten some, uh, some captive hatched animals that had uh, come in from a gravid female and raised up a male. And had, a, in fact, he had a huge male, one that, the biggest one that I've seen in person, about an eight and a half foot animal, by, uh, I think, by the time he was wow. done raising it. 
And um, that animal bred this uh, this hypo a, a couple of times so that we, you know, got some uh, some heads from her and just held back all the babies and began to, to breed from there. So um, the thing with Mollendorfs, they, you know, it, it's taken a few years to get this to get this going. But now we've, um, you know, for the last several years, I guess we've been uh, two or three years, we've been hatching out several Mollendorfs from different clutches. They just uh, they're 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 not as fast of, of growing an animal. I think they take at least four years, four to five years to mature. So they, uh, you know, they, they don't, it, it just takes a little bit longer to get them going and, uh, and get them breeding. But it, having the, uh, having the availability of captive hatched, uh, redheaded rats has, has totally changed my mind anyway, about how sensitive they are uh, in captivity. I think they're, they're really pretty hardy animals if the, if the proper conditions are provided. So now we, we keep well, as adults, we do, we do just keep them in a cage on pine, but offer up a full-time large sphagnum box that they can, uh, you know, that with, with moist sphagnum all the time, and then a separate hide and a water bowl, and they uh, they really do well. Awesome. Mm. Yeah, I know even yeah. I've had some struggles with, uh, you know, babies from Terry and all that um, in the past. So I, I maybe the sphagnum box is the... Uh, I don't know. That's always sort of my nemesis, whether it's Senecolis or the the Molendor fire or whatever. But uh, that that's really cool. They there are some weirdness with them, right? They lay really or they hatch really late. They lay later in the year. Is that right? They with your they, stuff? they oh they 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 breed late. They they breed late. They, um, they these guys breed in you know uh, I think begin to breed maybe in May, but primarily breed between uh, you know late May June. And uh, in fact, uh, I think Matt's still waiting on a couple of clutches of eggs. They don't start laying yeah. for the most part until late June, wow. early July, and more clutches. So, yeah. so and then uh, and then the <laughs> eggs take a good uh, you know a good 83, 84 days to hatch. They're, they're really a different type of egg too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh yeah. It's like they, uh, they take it's Thanksgiving when they're hatching, right? More or less. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and 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 the eggs. I'll tell you, the eggs are remind you more of a turtle egg when they hatch. They these guys. It's a it's a much harder shell. Much more. It's okay. not the leathery shell that most eggs are. And they they burst out the end. They uh, they punch out the end of the blow it out. <laughs> Great. Yeah, well, they, they, it kind of looks like it. You, it I've, I, we have never been able to catch a mole just uh, with his nose sticking out of the egg. They uh, because either either the egg has got an opening and there's a snake obviously in there, or they're out. It, uh, at least that's been my experience with them. So it's been hard wow. to uh, hard to guess it. But no, they uh, and and then Rob, you mentioned the uh, the getting them to feed. We've had uh, we. We determined a while back. We try to offer them a couple meals before uh, before hibernation. If they don't eat, then you just stick the babies directly into hibernation. They hatch late enough that many times okay. they do that, and almost mm-hmm. invariably they eat eat upon uh, coming out in the spring. So they uh, we've had much better luck that like way. Like fuzzies, big fuzzies, something like that. Yeah, they're they're big stinky, babies. They okay. are big babies, and, yeah. and uh, because of that, and and this uh, this is something a tip that Carl gave me, Carl Crumpy, when he was working with them too. He said, uh, "Don't set them up in little shoe boxes. Set them up in a bigger cage than normal than what you normally would." So, um, I've just okay. simply done that since I've been working with them and and have had good luck with them. They uh, they seem to do well. And you know, we set them up not the small shoe box, but the next size up, and uh, with plenty of height. Right. And you know, and many times I'll just use sphagnum as the as a substrate uh, and keep about a third of it damp and the rest of it dry, so they've got plenty of hide spaces and a good sized water bowl, and they do fine. Awesome. 
And then once they get some size, you know, at least the captive bred stuff, then they do really well, right? That's always been kind of the the reputation on the captive bred stuff is once they're really they going and established, then they get they get easier as they get bigger. <laughs> hmm. They really no, do, and, and, and uh, they get on yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they and they do develop quite a feeding response. So yeah, once you get them, I, I think once you once you get them up to you know like a couple of feet, I think you're you're out of the woods with them entirely. But uh, you know, and, and they and they seem to grow relatively quick to that point. But uh, again, you just got to kind of be patient. I, I had uh, had a couple of people that have contacted me, you know, three years after getting the animals, and they're like. I don't think I'm going to be able to breed these things. What what's taking them so long to grow? And I'm just like, that's just that's just Mollendorf. They do hit a point where all of a sudden they'll they'll hit a growth spurt, but yeah, it just uh, they're they're something that requires some patience. Okay. So, because they require patience, is it easy to, I don't know, overfeed or you know, uh, almost like micromanage them a little bit too much? I I well. I, I think you can get animals that would lend lend themselves to that, but they don't seem. I've never had them. Uh, yeah, some of them eat like that. They don't seem to just scarf things down like king snakes okay. do, and and you know some of the other snakes. Um, yeah, you you you'll put a couple of mice in there for them to eat, and they'll eat one and leave the other. So, uh, okay. I think you probably could. Like with any with any animal, there are some individuals that just uh, you know don't know when to quit, and <laughs> and the temptation is probably there to do so. But right. um, I, I think part of it has to do with the fact that you're keeping them on the cooler side as well, you know. I, and, and again, we uh, right. our rooms, you know, 68, 67 degrees at night, up to maybe 77, 78 degrees during the day. So their metabolism probably doesn't move as fast, and they just that keeps them slower too. Okay. Cool. Matt, do you want to talk about the uh, quote patternless stuff and how you guys have started mixing those two things together and all that? Well, so you're talking about the aberrant moles and stuff like that? Yeah. The the old, uh, you know, Cameron, when he sent him to Terry, called them patternless. <laughs> that first one was kind of a patternless one, and then no, no other ones have been, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, like Stan and I, we, we've been raising up some aberrant, too, as well. Um, and hopefully in the future we'll breed aberrant to aberrant. Um, right now, you know, I don't know what happened to that stock that, um, you know, Bushmaster obviously yeah. used to have and stuff like that, or where that stock ended up going. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, over the the next couple of years, I, I think, you know, a big thing that Stan and I want to try to do is try to lend that aberrant morph into the hypos and try to breed more aberrant to aberrant as well to kind of see, you know, can you get a patternless animal too as well if it'll come back to that Uh, yeah sure Mm -hmm. yeah you know it's interesting um because you don't you know stan and i we've talked about this too as well um whether it's the age of sexual maturity of the molendorfi or maybe people start forcing animals or i don't know um but there you don't see many people actually producing the molendorfi in captivity for some reason um no, not at all. I personally, I think it's this, those babies he sent out are tough. Honestly, I think that's a big part of it. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, I mean, they're once they get going, you know, like Stan said. I mean, maybe those people that bought those animals in the the late fall, they weren't started well enough. Yeah. Because um, I've mm-hmm. you know find some of those animals too from Bushmaster in the past. 
in comparison to the animals that Pies hatched out for Molendorfi, they're like twice the size. Um, now, whether or not that was maybe incubation temperatures or right. the size of the adults, you know, there's a lot of factors that we don't know because sure. obviously you know, Bushmaster was a wholesaler. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that those are a breeding stock of animals, if you will. And that's something obviously to take into account when buying from, you know, a member of that sales aspect. So, right. But, you know, hopefully in the, the next couple of years, um, this year I'm going to be sending stand a, in aberrant mail. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and hopefully raise up some double hats for the future. Yeah, we've already got a hypo girlfriend all picked out for him, so. <laughs> it's already, already all set. Yeah. It's, it's already all. And, 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 we, and we figure that we can uh, strengthen the bloodline in doing so because they're unrelated animals. So there we go. That's cool. Totally. And similarly, going back to, you know, a known wild caught or at least one known wild caught, you know, grandparent or yes. great-grandparent or whatever it is. Well, Stan, my no, you know right. my favorite thing that you have. Let's uh, can we talk about the loxosemus stump? Uh, <laughs> Is, Rob, you know, I never so, tired of talking talking of loxosemus. So certainly, <laughs> right? I mean, this uh, Owen, oh, you know, this is this is a snake yeah, that was what? Arm, right? uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This this was a quintessential snake of maybe when Mexico was open. This was a quintessential pet snake, and then essentially yeah. went the captive population as those animals got older or weren't being produced or whatever, dwindled to essentially nothing. And at this point, there's only a handful of people really doing anything with them seriously at this point. That's insane. Because that's something people, like people always talk about, what if Indonesia shuts down and nobody takes it seriously. But here is a perfect example of what will happen. Yeah, totally. And why we should probably have these projects for these, nobody really wants to do projects for massively imported animals because... You know, what is it? You, what is it you yell at me about? Because I said that people bring in fifteen dollar Nile monitors. Why do people want to actually, you know, try to right. breed Nile monitors? Yeah. So. Well, but, well, to that to that point, well, to that point, should Aspis, should, <laughs> to that point, should Aspis can is a perfect example. The uh, African mole snake. Those, yeah. Back, I remember. Yeah. The, I remember the seventies and eighties. Those were available, you know, all the time. And boy, I'd love to see some of see something those come in. But no, to uh, to your to your point. Rob, the Loxosemus, they, the New World pythons, you know, they, with both Mexico and and even uh, even a little after that with Central America, when Central, you know, they were shipping stuff out of Honduras. You know, these things I think were kind of being being walked into Honduras from different areas, but they were coming <laughs> right. in and, and were pretty inexpensive, and uh, people just took it for granted they'd always be there, and then suddenly they're not available. And these have, these I think have been a challenge for folks because there was just a little known about their natural history and mm. and in captivity again people weren't paying attention to what was required in, in breeding they just were considered a, a snake you couldn't breed mm-hmm. um and i think my wife and i we got our, we got our first pair in in um in 89 and we had that pair of animals they they came in we, we picked them out from an importer in mesquite texas and they were huge animals i had always read the books that these things averaged three feet in size and this was I think another problem that people encountered with trying to get them to breed these animals, we, we picked out a pair from a group of about 20 that had come in from uh, Honduras and these things were four and a half feet long. And I thought, wow, these are great. These, uh, you know, certainly we could do something with these, even yeah. at that size, those animals lived, we had them for, for 25, over 25 years. 
Um, <laughs> and that was the that was the first pair we bred, but they didn't breed for us until after we had had them for ten years. Jesus. Um, and and I I think that what we've what we've learned, or at least, and again, I think there's still so much to learn on these. But what we have come to to know is that they're extremely slow growing animals, very slow to mature. I don't, I don't think that you could breed a female in under 10 years of age. Um, and we've raised some from hatchlings now to, to, uh, to sexual maturity and bred them. We've got a couple females in the collection now that were hashed out in the San Antonio. San Antonio Zoo was the first that I'm aware of that, that successfully bred them. And we ended up with a couple females from, from that breeding via the Houston Zoo because they had some animals on loan with them, and then they surplused these two, two females, two hatchlings. Um, my wife saw them down at uh, one of the Houston shows and uh, and picked them up and they've since bred for us but they didn't breed the first one bred at 12 years of age and the second at like 14 Jesus. and so I think that one of the reasons <laughs> that people have not had luck with these is they they get them they they get discouraged with them and they you know get rid of them and move them on but right they sure. uh, they and, and then two we haven't the, the smallest female we've had breed is is four feet long so where the books say they, you know, adults average three to four feet. They, I think it's out. more like four, sure. four to five feet. Yeah, four to five feet. So uh, people aren't getting them big enough, and, and you just have to – other than that, they're like any other python. They, You know, we, we keep them um, – we, we tried for a while at first to mimic the, uh, you know, the natural the weather down there with the, the real rainy seasons and the dry season and all that. Right. But uh, at least with the captive animals, uh, we just keep them on uh, with a, either pine shavings or, uh, or mulch. Pine mulch, mm-hmm. keep a, yeah. a, a damp sphagnum box in there all the time, and a big water bowl and a hide. They're voracious feeders. Um, they and then we uh, we begin putting introducing them, putting them together in the fall, sometime around uh, you know around mid October through uh, on through mid December, and get breeding. And then they lay eggs uh, generally starting in around uh, the end of February, uh, in March and on through March. Uh, we have gotten one clutch. We got uh, last year. We got a clutch as late as the end of May, but that's the that's the latest I've ever gotten a clutch of uh, those. Wow! So, yeah, they've, uh, they've yeah, been, it, cool. it, that has that has been a very rewarding animal. That is cool. In ten years, I mean, I know some people. That <laughs> oh, are, and you thought all the pythons did six or seven years was that <laughs> seven? I'm dying with the seven years on white lip pythons, and you know, ten years. I also know people who were like. <laughs> measuring their snakes to the gram and they'll go enough it's like no dude it's like you know it's <laughs> what is it some people will do it like hey this python can breed after 13 months it's like but should it it's like yeah so um 10 years is wow that's a long project it is it is but you know i think uh you know I, I think that as long as it takes for those animals to grow i think i think they're a very long-lived animal i don't i you know wouldn't have a, a an estimate on you know what, where they might go, but I know we've had animals. We've got, we still got those other, those two ninety two hatchlings. So they're what uh, twenty seven years old or so. Sure. And, and uh, um, I think almost as old as Owen. You know, they lived a little long hey. time. <laughs> hey, so. you, you talked about how you got those animals in you know, my So it's like you know, I don't really want to get into this. So it was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the quintessential project that you have to be in it for what the snake is, right, and not not any sort of other motivation. Right, right, and and that's one of that's one of those animals that uh, my wife and I have said, you know, if we had to get rid of that, would be these species that if we had to get rid of everything else, we would hang on. Stays, yeah, yeah, that's cool. 
Yeah, Stan sent me a pair last year, and they're awesome animals in terms of interactions with, and they are a voracious feeder, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> they're not like rosy boas, are, are they, where at least the, the wild ones are totally fine, but captive ones, you can't even touch them. Oh, no, they're, they're, they're really, you know, the babies can be a little, you know, jerky at first and stuff like that. But as far as the, uh, once they grow up and, and the captive has are raised are the same way as adults, they're just real easy going. Um, uh, and, and I don't awesome. think I've never seen one, I've never seen one act in aggression, you know, strike or bite out of aggression. Um, mm-hmm. they, I have gotten nabbed by one at, at a, as a feeding response and they really hurt, but. Uh, they're they're just totally inoffensive <laughs> animals. I don't think you can make them bite. Now you can pick them up. They're awesome. they're really cool. Um, but when they smell their rodent, woo, that's when they go. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, are, are you kind of survive? Are you kind of surprised that they're maybe not as popular as some of the other animals that are running around, or do you just kind of feel like you don't care because you got them and forget everybody else? So. <laughs> I think it's been a, I think it's been a matter of availability. Anytime we do hatch them and have them, you know, we have people generally contacting us, you know, throughout the year. Hey, I saw mm-hmm. a post a long time ago. Do you still have any? Are you going to be working with any? So I, I think it's a matter of availability. I know there's a few people now breeding them and, and I'm really glad to see that because um, I know that they're from different lines. You know, we've still got some wild caught animals that uh, since they do live a long time and, and seem to do well, um, I, I think there's that's certainly an animal that has not been interbred by any means. They're, uh, there's a, they just haven't been that much done with them. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of interest in them. There's there's a great deal. Every time we've got uh, eggs on the ground or hatchlings available, we've got a great deal of interest in them. Yeah, Very oh, cool. and you know, even going off of that, um, it's been interesting over the past couple of years, cause especially even after posting pictures of eggs or hatchlings of animals. Um, a lot of animals have gained interest before even posting availability on animals, whether it be through instant messages or old ads being posted up on fauna classifieds, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's part of the reason why you don't even see some of these animals posted um, for available <laughs> right. projects. Too. People jump on them before they're even born. Yeah, it's one of those <laughs> kind of things where it, I feel like it's one of those pythons that if you would ever put a picture somewhere up, somebody will track you down if they're interested in it and just make it known kind of a deal. So, Right. They do. They do. Yeah. They, they tend to find you. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Um, real quick, I know you guys mentioned uh, getting stuff from Madagascar in the beginning of the show, and uh, our friend Riley was just wondering what animals you were getting in Madagascar and if you have any insight into maybe some of the uh, different stuff there. You really like uh, the hog nose out of Madagascar. I do. Um, <laughs> I have all of them. Both, both <laughs> Owen and Riley both really like yeah. the hog nose out of Madagascar, so that's the, the emphasis. <laughs> so. Go ahead, Matt. That was uh, I think you were mentioning. Yeah, that no, uh, you know, yeah, at the very beginning, um, I kind of made it like a, a mention or point. Um, that's when, you know, a lot of panther chameleons were coming in, so you'd see a lot okay. of different wild-thought locales and stuff like that. Um, in terms of at that point in time, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I That had was your no-snake time? More, yeah, no-snake <laughs> no time. 
a lot more chameleons oh. or geckos or frogs. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, that's one I, I haven't messed around with any of the Madagascar hogmouths at this point in time. Okay. Um, I we we did. Yeah. yeah, well, not the hog nose. Andrew and I did our we did our time with the Dumerals boas, and I can tell you it's an exceptional snake. If you've got room for Dumerals, they're uh, they're a wonderful animal. So yeah, we sure messed with them. Oh, and didn't you just buy one? Still, why? 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 <laughs> why? Why? Why are you going to air my dirty laundry out there? <laughs> Especially after I went on many rants saying no more boas ever. Um, uh, yes. Um, I had a Dumerals boa female for the longest time that was just given to me. And I'm like, you know what? Like if I ever find a boy and I said that, and it's usually one of those things that you say and you throw out into the ether and every once in a while it boomerangs back at you. Like the, I'll go to the reptile show. There won't be anything there that I'll want. And then you go and you're like, crap. So yeah, now I have a (laughs) pair of Dumerals boas. So good um, good for you. Never say never, man. (laughs) That's the problem is I say – the problem is I uh, – unfortunately, I say things, and they're archived in a digital um, – like like people will bring them up, especially Rob, who has recordings of what I said like eight years ago and just likes to play them for me. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, I was wrong about that. I was wrong about retics. I was wrong about this. It's like, yeah, okay. So that's the new one is yeah. that I said – Oh, and we're only, we're only a couple months away from that show. That will be fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. So, yep. Well, that's how some new projects always start up. I usually send Stan a message and go, "Hey, what do you think about this?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and now, yeah, do you do that happens, hoping so. that he'll convince you not to do it, or just like so that he'll start like, or because I imagine he just turns the, the screws a little bit better towards the whole like, yeah, those are cool. I mean, has there ever been a point where he's like, no, don't do that? No, it's usually, well. <laughs> I, I, I think there have been one or two animals where we decide. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's <laughs> it's usually that. <laughs> have you got any empty cages right now, Matt? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, good. So it's not just me. <laughs> no. God. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the Mahela that you're working with? And, and I was I was even thinking of this earlier when you talked about starting babies. What what do those start on? Well, what let's start at the beginning. What are you working with? And then what yeah. uh, what do they start on as babies? So you know we were talking about you know Indonesia closing closing all this stuff. I mean those Mahela. I mean that's one genus of animals that is really highly overlooked, if you will, too. Um, so those animals were coming in as a byproduct of the African uh, ball, ball pythons in general coming in, right? Um, right. The two species I work with are the Cape file and the common forest file, um, which is the cross-eye. Um, the okay. cross-eye, it's taken me a little bit to figure them out, um, this year I figured out that you can get upwards of four clutches of eggs out of them, um, <laughs> which is kind of amazing when you're thinking about it because you don't see that species bred very readily. Um, and to get multiple clutches of eggs out of the animals, I thought was pretty pretty cool to actually see it. Um, 
Totally. In terms and of- well, and so just to to interject real quick, they can you talk about they are a weirdly proportioned snake, right? They're supposed to look sort yeah. of like a a bungaris or something like that, right? Where they're they're sort of a triangle more so than we're used to in other stuff. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, you know, some of my adult females are over four foot in terms of length. Um, they all eat rodents, um, mice or rats, frozen thawed. Um, you know, in terms of getting animals too, that was one of those projects where I tried to buy as many wild caught because I figured some of them wouldn't survive during the process. Um, especially, you know, doing fecals, um, getting checks and stuff like that through a veterinarian just to make sure that you had a high quality stock during the quarantine process. Um, but that's one species that I've never, you, you can take them out, handle them, easy to handle. Um, don't run, you know, especially in a captive setting. Um, I'd actually consider them a great beginner snake once they're established as hatchlings. Um, because the care awesome. of them is, you know, warm spot, 85 degrees, um, anywhere, you know. So if you're going back to that typical corn snake setup, um, right. you, know, you could have cypress mulch, a nice moist hide, um, a dry hide too as well. But the fact that they're readily eating on rodents, I think, makes them even a more interesting animal based upon their physical appearance, right? Um now, in terms of getting them started, I mean, I typically start them on live tanks or frozen thawed wash tanks. Um, I had sent Stan some, so he can tell you his experience on getting babies going, too. But um, usually they're not too bad to get going. So. I, I would say, Rob, that, that, that cross-eye is a species that uh, you can use if you want to humble your friends who may, uh, who may be getting a little too overconfident in their success with animals. <laughs> Because uh, my, down my daughter had uh, my daughter had seen uh, had seen some of these things go uh, in a, in a cross through a pass through box that uh, Matt and I were shipping around, and uh, she fell in love with them. Uh, and so Matt sent her uh, her a couple down, and he said, "Hey Stan, these are already feeding, so you guys shouldn't have any trouble." And so after they refused their third meal, I'm going, Matt, <laughs> what do you what how do you get these things to eat? So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> to find so, already feeding. It's like Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, define already feeding. Yeah, but but yeah, they. Uh, but you know, it's it's like Stan Love. Take a wash pinky, throw it in a brown bag, put the snake in there with it, and then they'll do fine. And and sure enough, you know. So it's uh, it's a matter of just finding all those little tricks, trying all those little tricks once or twice. <sighs> yeah. Now, sure. What are but they, they, they now seeing their third feeding? Yeah, yeah, they just had their third feeding, so they're doing fine, man. So, so, yeah. but, uh, but it, it is rather humbling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And so, yeah, can you tell uh, the audience a little bit more about this, the two different species that you have, and if there are any differences yeah. between them? Or no. yeah, so the the Cape files obviously from the southern area of Africa, Cape Africa, um, but that species in general. That's one of the ones that's more the highly sought-after one. It has the white stripes that comes down the back. It has real bright purple coloration. Um, even though you'll see that in the, the cross-eye, that purple or darkish black coloration right. to it, um, the capes just have more spectacular coloration to them or appeal. 
um, still have the same physical attributes, you know, with uh, the scalation, that file-like figure or triangular body. Um, I'm still trying to figure out the case. Um, so hopefully in the next couple of years, uh, I'll be able to get that one kind of going. Those have been a, a little bit of a humbling experience, I guess would be the best <laughs> way to try to, especially having as much success with cross-eye multiple clutches right. a year for multiple females, um, just trying to figure out the case and what separates them from the more common cross-eye species in the hobby. Um, now, that being said, I mean, I wouldn't recommend wild caught on cross-eye to the general public. I mean, if you can find captive-born, captive-born is really the way to go on those those animals sure. especially. Yeah. Well, I mean, and they look rough enough just as the way they're supposed to look, right? So that if you have an actually yeah. really rough wild one, that's, that's got to be a uh, – yeah, well, not even, great. Even when, yeah, well, even when I bought that – bought into those animals and wanted you know and, and Stan can even comment too because Stan had kept some in the past too um, yeah. I never had luck with them I mean they died um, so when I started getting more and more interested in them again um, I just tried to buy as many as I could and I mean I lost probably about 40% of them um, due to parasites or yeah. some other aspect or when I brought them into the vet something else showed up and I was like, ah, this one, there's something else going on. Um, so just kind of work through that, you know, and try to make, make it work, you know, and have the, the best breeding stock for that too, as well. Um, and I'm sure Stan can even comment too on his prior experiences with them too. Um, usually they wouldn't feed was the big, that was thing. the thing. I mean, and it, it was cross-sided. We got in a few years ago that, uh, um, and that was just a couple of them, but again, that that speaks to Matt's point about how you have to bring in a number of individuals. And I, I think uh, you know it's a matter of getting good stock to begin with. But if there's just a couple, if they uh, and something like this, if they've gone for they if they've gone for a while without eating and you know are run down in the first place, particularly with these guys, since they're reptile eaters, you know by nature as well, they include a lot of reptiles. I think the chance of parasites is pretty good, and that, that seems to just take a toll on them. And if you don't find the right conditions or don't you know don't find what they need pretty quickly then uh, then it, it just uh, accelerates and you lose them pretty quick but yeah we we tried and couldn't uh, couldn't get those guys to eat and and that's why i was probably uh, you know i was probably the, i was the rob to uh, to uh, matt why did you get those things yeah what are you doing with those man i've had those in the past so <laughs> but uh, no fortunately he didn't listen so yeah they're, they're, fortunately awesome. he didn't listen and it's worked out. I mean, been able to hold back a number of captive-born babies and just kind of, you know, as time goes on, hopefully replace some of my wild-caught stock with them. Um, but they they are a hardy animal if you get them going. Um, but I, like I said, I would recommend going towards a, a captive animal, in, in, especially mm-hmm. within species. So. Awesome. But hopefully, a couple years. And no, <laughs> awesome stuff. Um, Stan, do you have? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your Angolan pythons? I know we got a ton of uh, listener interest in those. Everyone sees your king snake ads and gets thinks about it a lot, <laughs> whether they pull the trigger or not. 
I even thought yeah, about it. No, That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I even well, thought about well, Angolans. They, well, I, I think with good reason. I think they're more mm. of a carpet python than they are anything. So <laughs> they, uh, no, they, they, they really are. You know, when you when you when you study these things in pictures and books and look at them from afar, you think, oh, it's just a you know just another ball python. But um, we've kept you know we've we've kept you know my wife and I've kept jungles and diamonds and a few different uh, carpets. And these things remind me more of a carpet python than anything, just in their their temperament, the way they move. Um, but yeah, they're the Angolans are really a, a, a cool animal, not a you know not a really big python, which is you know can be can be a big advantage. But uh, I think our biggest females, uh, you know, she's probably five and a half feet or so, pretty good size. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm afraid I'm a python breeder who does not weigh my snake, so I have absolutely no idea how many grams. <laughs> But uh, they, uh, but again, the the Angolans are something that uh, I think take a little bit of time to grow. Um, you know, they're a, they're a good five six year animal to reach sexual maturity. But um, other than that, you know, we keep them in a we keep them in a pretty typical setup. You know, pine shavings with uh, either a, a spotlight or a heat pad of some type. You know, some kind of uh, basking surface, um, a good hide spot, and uh, they are they too are voracious feeders. So. Okay. Um, yeah, we've had uh, we've had good luck just uh, just kind of keeping them like we are, you know, in a typical setup, rather rather on the dry side. Okay, it's it's that's one cool. Of those and what um, they're different. Yeah, Rob, yeah. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say, what um, where what is the lineage on your stuff? I, I know you mentioned Houston Zoo before, and I know they were one of the folks who had initially had success with those. What which What's the stock on your angle? And, and, and these, these again, these came from somebody who was having to liquidate a, uh, a collection, and and uh, I, and he, I don't know exactly, don't remember where they came from, so I can't tell you the stock, the lineage on mine. So, where these guys okay. are from? No, that's just as fair. I, I remember a couple of years ago we were talking to uh, Tim Bailey on the show, and I had asked him and kind of you know being a liking lineage and these sorts of th- localities and lineage and all this sort of stuff. There's there's an appeal to that, and I had asked him about his Angolans, and he said, oh well, I think mine are actually a mix. And it seems like that most of the success, people who are having success at this point, that's kind of the case, you know. And it was speaks yes. to probably a wider gene pool than just saying, oh, all my stuff's from Alzulich or whatever it would be. And and I don't I don't think that's a bad idea. I would I would rather. I would rather outbreed the animals and get a little extra blood in there than try to stick with one location um, because of the, the, you know, uh, inbreeding. I mean, it's, I don't know. It, um, it With these animals, they're found in such a limited range. I don't think there's going to be, I don't think there's a, a great deal of difference between one side of the range to the other, but there've been so few animals sure. that have come in. Uh, if there's any opportunity to, to outbreed and get some different bloodline in there, I think it's well worth taking that. So yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense, and it, it even that point hits on kind of the, uh, you know, the point of inbreeding, right? The tighter the location that they're from to begin with, the less likely they're going to have problems with inbreeding because the population's probably all pretty much related. Whereas if you took something like a, a boa constrictor, right, with a, a super wide range, and then you were just breeding, you know, uh, these two, and then you followed it down the line, you might actually run into issues because they aren't something that's been naturally sort of inbred and all the deleterious genes being bred out over time. Right, right, right. Very cool. Do you guys want to talk about uh, 
Uh, I was going to give you a sales pitch here, Stan, for your oxyrophus that you posted up, but uh, it seems like the ad's gone, so maybe they're already sold. But uh, mm-hmm. you guys want to talk about those at all? The uh, we um, the, well, the, the oxyrophus that um, there we we worked with two species: the flame snakes, the uh, uh, Rumbifera uh, inequifasciata. Uh, only only slightly. We actually uh, Matt and I brought some of those in from a, a, a breeder in Europe who uh, who's been working with them. And uh, I, I did this again. You know, sometimes we just see things and decide to try them. Uh, my wife and I have been working for a few years with Oxyropus fitzingeri, which is the Peruvian uh, calico snake. Right. Um, those came from uh, another European breeder, but they uh, they're they're kind of a different animal. Found out on the uh, the Peruvian coast, and these uh, they don't get real big. The the, the adults seem to max out at about uh, you know just right around three feet. But the babies hatch out uh, pretty decent size. They they hatch out around nine inches, ten inches or so, big enough that they can wow. take a, uh, a a newborn pinky um, on their own. And and we've had pretty decent luck getting the hatchlings to uh, to begin feeding just on washed pinks, either either washed or brained or washed and brained. And um, so when uh, Matt and I saw these, it was one of those deals where we saw the ad go up, and I said, "Hey Matt, what do you think about trying these?" And he's like, "Go ahead." Um, he said, yeah, let's, let's do it. <laughs> and then, and then he opened the box and said, Stan, these things are tiny. <laughs> so, um, this, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and they were, they were what, Matt, about six inches long or so, something like that. Oh, uh, they were um, like baby wing snakes. <laughs> they remind me of that. We used to, my wife and I used to breed Scarlet Kings and they look like that. So, um. Um, fortunately, this and, and, and this is the advantage of, of being married to a wife who, uh, who doesn't mind reptiles at all, likes reptiles and works with them, and and has patience because uh, she assist fed those little things, uh, you know, either mouse tails or or you know mouse arms and whatnot legs until they got big enough that uh, we were finally able to get them to start on uh, washed pinkies. And so yeah, now that was the inequifasciatus. The Fitzinger eye are, um, they like I said they're they're a really cool animal. Totally different as far as in in, in appearance. Um, they you know have, have a, a, a ground color. They're pretty variable. A ground color that's anywhere from a buckskin to a salmon pink. Um, they can be orange or anything in between, and then have a. I, I think it's kind of a gunmetal gray to a black uh, pattern scattered all over the top. So that's awesome. Uh, really a different Very animal. Cool. Both the. All the oxyrufus I've seen are, are really inoffensive. Now they're they're a rear fang animal, so you do have to you know we watch them and handle them with care. But it's one of those animals again. I don't think you can make them bite. They're just uh, really inoffensive. Oh, and That's I think really this cool. would be a perfect animal for you if uh, oh, given really? your taste. If, um, <laughs> if, we're if they're still available, yeah. I don't know that they are. Awesome. <laughs> Got to stay. Even what yeah, you they're, like, they're pretty but cool. uh, yeah. If it doesn't try to kill me, I don't like it. So you know, it's or well, not, if some, it, if it, it it might not try to, right? But it it could. But it's right? got That's the what you like. Could. Yeah. See, there you go. Yeah. You know. <laughs> there you yeah. go. It, it could it could easily do it. Like yeah, right there. So totally. Well, that was the when you picked up those Madagascan hognose, right? You said, "Hey man, should I get these?" And I was like, mm, "I don't know, man. They got kind of a wonky bite that maybe we don't know that much about." And you said, "Oh, really? Well, it just bit me." Well, it just oh, bit oh, me. Okay, so it's, like, cool, so, it's, like, it's like, well, it just bit me. So you're too slow in texting, and uh, we'll see how this goes. And it, and uh, yeah, it was like it puffed up a little bit, got a little itchy, and then went back down. I'm like, good, we survived. We can keep these. 
So it's well, <laughs> hooray, more, and that's where we went with that. So that was that was kind of a, a buddy of mine's experience with uh, with uh, mangrove snakes years ago. Oh, they, and, and again, all the all the old texts talk about how gentle those things are. They 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 rear fang, but they're gentle, don't do anything. Well, that was because nobody kept them long enough for those things to settle down. But uh, there's <laughs> something too that didn't. <laughs> There's something too that that Andrew and I bred years ago, and they're I would they're they're, they're totally neat animals, really cool snakes, but uh, but once they get settled in, they they have have gotten quite a temperament, quite an attitude. And my good buddy got bit in the side by one, and it uh, made a huge purple bruise on his uh, on his side for a while because the snake <laughs> had a chance to chew, to chew. But um, yeah, and if you're into snakes that have an attitude and, and you know. Always want to make it think. You know. well, yeah, well, then I, I would suggest uh, mangrove snakes. The boag are a pretty neat, neat genus. They've they've been on my periphery of things that I, if I had um, a building, I would totally do. But it's like I, there's <laughs> cages are filled with other things, and you know, it's babies, and you know, I again, they will, they're on my list. Uh, but they're um, they're cool. That was yeah. that was something as far as getting to we were talking about you know getting babies to feed and whatnot. Um, mm. That was something where we had we had luck getting the babies to feed, but it was by those and red-tailed green rats holding the babies and taking a dead pinky and tapping the snake on the nose until he gets mad enough to grab it, and then they would just all sure. and swallow it. So uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah I, rhinos I have... will mostly do that too. Yeah. Oh, good! I can look forward to that next year. Um, it's, <laughs> I, I, I have um, I have rough scale pythons, and to, next year is the first year we're going to try breeding them, and I'm slightly terrified because I've heard like horror stories of babies getting going and stuff like that. So I don't know. We'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, well, that's what long the, Stan. It, it's funny to yeah. me that you that Boyga were considered to be inoffensive snakes because I remember all the ones that I've had would stand and do that same box threat display that you'd see out of a rough scale. <laughs> you know, oh, so I don't know. Uh, I can't even imagine oh thinking that they were fine. God. They do if that. You, if you I'm look at the books, if you look yeah. at the books from the fifties and sixties that talk about, and, and it's, a, I, I think it's a matter of them coming in and just being in shock and, uh, you know, not, uh, you know, not, right. not, not doing anything, but yeah, all we, I remember seeing a few of those come in through importers, and now you can pick through them and look through them, and they're not that bad. You get an occasional animal that's pretty, uh, that you know, that does get the flattened neck and the open mouth and all that. But many of them, I think, they're just in shock, and so they're they're not doing anything. And yeah, you look at some of the old Dittmark books and things like that. It's amazing. <laughs> but oh, uh, once they once they settle down, yeah, they're they're tigers. Oh my goodness, that's, that's dangerous. Yeah. The the Bibrini Australis are like that too, Stan. I know that you know everyone yeah. says, oh, they're the tamest snakes and all this stuff, and it's like, man, if you you know a non uh, reproductively cycling female, you you reach in that well, then the males all all year long or whatever, you reach in there at night, you know, once the lights are out, you're gonna get bit and it's gonna hurt a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like yeah. no question. Yeah. <sighs> Rob, Man. did you ever get bit by that Pataeus that I sent you? Yeah. Well, and then that female that we got. <laughs> man, she's gotten me a couple times. She just bit me the other day. Like, <laughs> I think it's a, a maniac. Well, you the know. Right yeah. There. I was like, man, I hope they hope they ID'd this right because 
you know, it bit me the first day or second day. And I was like, oh, I hope this is what it's supposed to be. Well, we're about, it's one of those exact, we're about to find out how this goes. It's like, yeah, it's sometimes it's after the fact. Um, but you know, there are, when the lights go out in the snake room, there are certain doors you just don't open, just leave them shut. It's not worth it. So. God, or at least just, you have to be, you have to be ready for it or have something for them. You know, it's, that's, that's, that's fine, true. Yeah. But yeah. Open the cage. Just the, the notion that people face. are, you know. <laughs> Yeah. You post that on Facebook and say, oh, I got bit by an Australis, and people will say, what? I can't even imagine. And it's like, yeah, try touching them after – or they set up well and try touching them after dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a, there's a few of them like that. Awesome. Well, my buddy Sean uh, Childers, the worst at Chicago Reptile House, he's the only person I know that's gotten bit mid-palm by a black rat. So that one still amazes me. <laughs> Yeah. What? How? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Reaching the wrong bag at the wrong time. So. Not well. Right? right. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff happens, you know. Yeah. Yeah. As, I, as I, long I as it's that. you know, not venomous and not a crocodilian, then you know, and Owen can't even claim that. Then all bites are fine, you know. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've been nailed by crocodilians too. Yeah, those aren't fun. Um, but. <laughs> Yeah, they're all. All my fingers are still there. Jeez, Rob. <laughs> so it's uh... <laughs> no broken bones. Yeah. Okay. No broken bones. It's fine. Just move on. Yeah, it's, I'm alive, yeah, right? We're good. Rob, Rob is... don't get don't get into comparing bite stories. So yeah. no, that's where it gets. Oh dangerous. lord, you know. <laughs> Rob's gonna have a great time trying to make sure I don't get killed in Australia. He's like, he's gonna be just watching me and just making sure I just don't die in Australia. And it's going to be hard. I'm going to make it difficult. I can already tell you. So, Yeah, it'll be great, man. Yep. Do you, so we're kind of – we're getting towards the back half of this stuff. Do you guys mm-hmm. – is there stuff we haven't touched on that you're is coming up for this season that you guys are really excited about or, or that we would be excited about or maybe the audience would be excited about? Um. I, you know, some of, the, some of the, some of the, some of the, yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, you know, some of the different stuff that, uh, that, that we've been working with and, um, you know, we're not, not coming up this year, but, uh, Matt, Matt and I've been working on for a little while that they laugh at David. I are, are kind of cool animals, something that just, uh, Matt keeps going, stand there, brown snake, but they're a cool brown snake because they're not found. <laughs> I mean, they're so rare. <laughs> That's they're, exactly, uh, you know, it's, I'm breeding water pythons. No one cares. I, but I do. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> That's exactly right. So, so, you know, some of the, some of the different stuff that, you know, and, and along that brown snake line, the, uh, the, uh, Zeminus Hohenakri and some of the different things. So, we're working on, uh, you know, just again some of the Asian and European rat snakes that, uh, um, but the Davids have been one that have been really cool. And there's, uh, uh, I think, a, a, a friend of Matt sent him a picture of uh, one. Was it feeding Matt on a, on the Great Wall of China, or he just saw it on the Great Wall of China, or something like that? It just, saw it uh, on the Great Wall of China. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Just out in the wild, but. Um, so they're they're a different animal, and then the Hoanokri and, and have been different. And we're trying to build on that just a little bit. Um, the, some of the things people haven't uh, messed around with a lot. Um, well, and, and Stan and we've I been, have really uh, been focusing on Persian rats too, as well. Going back to the Pied Persians and rebuilding that. Sure. Um, yeah. 
we're, we're working Stand on something. Well, working have, on uh, with Matt, that. you got yeah. the, that red one that Stan sent me, right? That red pie? Is that one still no, I don't have doing good? Pie. Uh, Stan has that red pie. I know got a Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's that's something we've been kind of uh, the the Pied Persians have been a puzzle that I think are, are we don't know enough about. We assumed when they first hatched out, and and that was something that that Andrew and I hatched out back in the uh, late nineties. They and they were it was kind of spontaneous, and we just, we determined it was from a an, an original heterozygous wild caught animal. And when we bred him back to his daughter, we didn't know he had anything. It didn't. It totally turned up unexpectedly. We uh, we got a right. pair of animals in, bred this male, um, and then raised some of the, held the babies back and bred him later back to his daughter. And out of five eggs, three of them came out pied, and uh, we were were totally blown away. And thought that that was just a uh, you know thought it would be just a typical simple recessive gene and began to breed for that. And um, folks began to have uh, we didn't recognize it till years. It's only recently we've begun to determine that maybe there's something going on here. People began having problems with, uh, you know, high infertility, kinked babies. You know, we we played with temperature, all hmm. the normal stuff. Maybe we're inbreeding them too much. Maybe the temperatures are wrong. Um, some of the babies would hatch out and look just fine, and then they would uh, they develop kinks as they grew and things like that. So I, I think now more it's a, uh, you know, it's a problematic gene, and we're trying to figure out what you got to breed to be able to get the pies without screwing, you know, without having screwed up babies and stuff like that. I, I don't uh, begin okay. to think you can't breed pied to pied or even pied to head. I think you have to just breed head to head uh, to be on the safe side. Wow. I don't know. We're still we're working with that to see you know what's what's there. But it's I don't think it's it's uh, even though it acts like a simple recessive gene, I think it's got a problem built into it. Yeah, and this is and something Rob Stan just... and I we've been working on for like five years now. Conversations going back and forth, raising up babies. I mean, raising them with UVB. Um, and raising them without UVB just to see are there any changes between the babies and, and just kind of going through, you know, supplementation, um, all kinds of stuff. Just Interesting. What other factors might actually be contributing. And just before we get everyone too excited, I mean, admittedly the, the excited excitement is maybe tempered by <laughs> what you've just been talking about. But the, the, in terms of pride, it mostly is an expression on the face, right? Or the, the face and maybe the belly and coming up the laterals and uh-huh. stuff like yeah. that. It's not like a, a high percentage white ball python sort of pied look, right? No, no, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't even look like the pied uh, uh, musaranas and things like that. It, it's, you know, white face and, and down the down the belly, you know, Typically, they don't have that, but yeah, it's a white face and down the belly, and it comes up the side some too on the some too on the uh, the ones with high white, and some it can be just on right. the, the chin and neck, you know, and kind of come up the face a little bit. Totally. So, yeah. And then in terms of, I know those Ho and Akrai, I Matt and I were at Tinley. Was this this past year or the year before? And I was looking at some of those that someone had, and Matt was strongly dissuading me from getting those. So he was he was being my route to to Owen. But maybe that was about the vendor, right? I, you know, I, you whatever. Know that's yeah, a different I mean, story for a different day. Yeah. Uh, but those are cool too, right? Like that's a really cool, you know, that caucuses thing, you know. Um, yeah. And the the David I, yeah, those are all. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you guys are having hopeful to have some success and stuff because those are, as you say, snakes that. Uh, well, in the David I case, right? Those that's that's new in the last 10 years or so, and then the the caucuses, that's 
something that used to be more common, right, than it is now. I, I think so. And yeah, the David I or the David I are new within just uh, the last several years, ten ten years, like you say. The uh, the Transcaucasians, I, I think they probably were, and you know, at, at one time it seemed like there were more over here, but it's one of those things that kind of faded away, and uh, and suddenly we were looking around for some, and and uh, uh, weren't able to find any over here. We found some, and and you know, from Europe, and uh, we're able to get some from over there, but things are tightening up over there, so that's you know, and, and that's kind of prompted us too to try to get in what we can and build the population, no, you know, build our, totally. our collections anyway. Yeah, and and Rob, don't forget everything from Europe comes with extreme lineage and localities. So <laughs> you always <know> <laughs> sure. Yeah, they can tell you. They can tell you which rocks they they came from under. So yeah, right. Yeah. No, no, no. So the the person three generations ago found it out, right? Oh <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, man, but you know what? Oh, in, in all serious though, uh, you know, Stan and I we've made great friends with a select few people overseas and they've helped us out tremendously um both in finding some of these different species to you know even the conversations that we've had in terms of what you know what works what doesn't work or can you provide um contacts with some people that are working with these species so we can kind of better understand them it's been a very open network that i mean the hobby from that has really benefited both Stan and I in understanding the animals further. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How about you, Matt? Any other projects that Stan didn't mention that you're that are exciting for this coming season or that we well, haven't touched I'm hoping, on? Uh the red and black snakes from Africa that have just kind of popped up into the hobby, if you will. Um hoping, like I said, I I saw captive breeding. Um, I posted some pictures of that, um, and awesome. she finished her pre-lay shed before I left this week, so I'm hoping to come home, see some eggs, or at least in the next couple of weeks, start monitoring it more closely. Um, waiting on the last clutches of Molendorfi and two more clutches of um, Japanese forest rats to start hatching. Um you know, one of the awesome. biggest, the coolest thing That's I think cool. that, you know, I, I hatched out that Japonica, um, which is the pattern with form of that, right. uh, if you will. So that, all of those, I mean, it's just like looking at like a mosaic glass window, stained glass, because the colors on them are just unbelievable up front in person. Um well, they're the but, most beautiful babies that exist, right? I mean, that's that's the other bit, you know, for people that aren't familiar, right, is that as babies, these are the most incredible snakes in the world, and then they become muted as they get bigger, right? And and the other bit that, you know, we should, <laughs> worth pointing out is that they have, what, one, two, three eggs, something like that. So it's a Oh, my flawed. God. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it really, you know, talking about, like, coloration and stuff like that, some of the locales, they might look a little bit darker than others, but when you get them up in front, I mean, you'd actually be surprised what a green animal looks like. Um, wow. Because it, it, there's orange in the scalation. It's hard to really depict them in pictures. Um, but, you know, like the color, the pattern is what kind of separates. I actually don't think that's black on the actual the scales. I think it's actually blue. 
Um, mm-hmm. and it's okay. way with the orange and the red and how it actually dissipates on them. Um, but I mean, number of eggs, I mean, you know, one to three is the largest. <laughs> I mean, Stan, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, clutch of, clutch of three. They're enormous eggs and the babies hatch out huge. And that's a, that's a good thing. And that it's tough if you're down sure. in Texas and it's a hundred degrees and they hatch out in July and you're, you're not you're trying to cool them down, you know, so you can put oh, them in hibernation, okay. but because they're not eating. But yeah, no, it's uh, it they are amazing looking little animals, and yeah, it's it you're not gonna you're not gonna be stuck with twenty overnight like uh, like some of the other things you were talking about earlier. So <laughs> <laughs> they're in and they're out. It's like I got it. Yeah, yeah. twenty over a decade, I suppose, maybe right? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, twenty over a decade. That's right. Well, no, but they, you know, uh, they, they are pretty rewarding animals, yeah. Yeah, and Rob, I mean, even how I got them into my collection and then Stan's collection is I actually contacted Cloth about them, and he actually mm. referenced Did you? Okay. Rex Knight. And then Rex Knight, I mean, it took two years sure. of talking to Rex because he didn't want to sell them to just anyone. Um, he wanted totally. to make sure, like, husbandry, care, everything was being taken care of the animals before – and then I bought a, a adult pair from Jeff Jack Harwick in uh, Minnesota, and I drove up and, and mm-hmm. we got to chat and stuff like that. And I mean, it, it was a good experience. And I mean, now Stan and I have just kind of grown both of our collections with the conspix because um, yeah. I think they are a very rewarding species to have in the hobby. So the coloration awesome. on them wow. is just unbelievable. That's like the truth. Yeah. So, right. Did you ever see one of those rabbits in person? Yeah, and even well, so I don't. I haven't seen a big one. Um, and it's okay. certainly. I'm, I'm imagining it as something that's one of those that from ten feet seems kind of boring, and then when you're closer, <laughs> it's much more interesting. Uh, kind of depends on the locale, to be honest. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. You know, because, um, like, the Gifu locale, they'll actually keep a lot of, like, that black, the blackish or bluish patterning on them. But they come in so many different colors. And, I mean, some of them would hatch out yellow or orange or bright red, um, hatched out some green ones, um, some metallic green ones, some metallic red ones. I mean, the variety and coloration has just been kind of unbelievable to see as hatchling. Um and, and, and that's one of the things I kind of find. Yeah. That, that's one of the things I find really, uh, really fun about them is, is the variety. And uh, I think one of the one of the neatest ones that we have down here at my place is just an olive green male. So he's, you know, where these where, where it seems typically there there's some shade of red or orange or, or brown or something. This guy's just olive green and just really a cool looking animal. So uh, something different, you know. It's yes. Like yeah, that's well, cool. And that Owen, Owen, I can't yeah. overstate. You're, you know, this is going to a mostly Python audience, and I can't overstate how when you say something different, that's not that's not doing this justice because right. some, I, like you know, as Matt just pointed, I think I've seen a single baby at Daytona once, you know, and that's it, literally it. That's the only time I've seen the snake, the species of snake alive, let alone the half dozen locales or whatever that Matt and Stan are working with. This is a, totally a it's one of these things where we're talking to these guys who just you're so far into it that then it seems much more normative than it actually is. <laughs> but that's, 
But that's the cool thing, because I'd much rather see some weird crap at shows than like, oh, look, another table full of leopard gecko. Like, you know, it's that's the kind of cool stuff. So I, I, I dig it, and it's uh, that's awesome. So, Well, yeah. maybe one of these years, Dan and I will have enough stock to actually do a show. <laughs> <laughs> enough enough stock that you, that you want to let go. That's the other problem. Is that like, it's like, yeah, that's a big thing to you. <laughs> See, yeah, it's almost yeah. like I'd much rather Maybe. just hang on to this stuff myself. Like, exactly. <laughs> Maybe six or seven years from now, there'll be an extra one or two. Yeah, just let yeah. one or two go. <laughs> totally. Well, you know, Rob, even like totally. uh, Sam was talking about late clutches in the year. I mean, I'm still waiting on some of my Vietnamese Mandarin rat snakes to lay eggs. Jesus. Um, that will have yeah. breeds later in the season, too. Um, and typically those hatch at the same time as the Mullendorfa. So, and a really big so snake crazy. too, right? Yeah, some of my uh, Vietnamese. I mean, I've had them over four feet, um, taking yeah. like small, medium rats. Um, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, they're <laughs> big Mandarin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. That is a. And those big. those just come in a variety of colorations too and patterns. Um, so it, it's been right. Are those cool the classic? Is that the classic big blotch, you know, or big bullseye stuff, or is it the the white stuff, or what? So the Vietnamese would be, you know, some of the high yellow, some of the stuff you talked with with Ralph when he did the show too. Mm-hmm. Um, going uh-huh. into like exanthic mandarins, the high yellows. Um, I got a clutch this year from striped mandarin that are real aberrant in terms of their patterning. Um, so <laughs> those, those types That's of animals awesome. that are, again, will, will there be any that are released kind of question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even think that's a question. <laughs> yeah. It's a no. Yeah. <laughs> it's an unequivocal no. <laughs> yeah. We'll let you look sure. at them okay. and you should be happy for that. It's like, yeah, I got it. So it's, that's <laughs> awesome. Sounds about well, right. Geez. Yeah. Well, and then uh, you know, uh, so that, Rob, you just mentioned yeah. this. This is mostly a uh, you missed, missed this mostly a Python audience, and in in uh, in that vein, um, yeah. and Owen with uh, with kind of the snakes that you're into, um, if you're looking mm-hmm. for something that might have just a slight attitude and still be a Python, have you uh, have you had a chance to experience Bothrachylus boa yet? The uh, the ring python. <laughs> I have, and I've had horrible luck with them, so I've kind of been giving them <laughs> giving them a wide berth at the moment, and. I will eventually fold them back in, but again, it's one of those space things where it's like, I don't, all of a sudden right now I'm sitting here and I'm like, I have five Timor pythons. How'd that happen? It's like, I need to, (laughs) certain things need to be weeded out and kind of like, you know, and then yes, eventually I will circle back. Well, you can send those to me, Owen. That'll be fine. And then you'll have the room. Um, I was going to say, you know, know, we've we've been working with those and they're just, I I think they get a bad rap. They're, uh, they're great little animals that just take a little patience, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're different colored yeah, white. Yeah, so I just I, <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I, or or a small retic, you know, it's like a small, small insular retic. Yeah. See, and that's what I'm doing. I'm training with these larger, pissed off, insane retics that I have to get ready for these tiny little sure. miniature ones. So yeah, I've if anything, I'm going backwards. <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, I don't know how well that worked out because Stan has really docile rings, and then I sent him a female, 
That one's just like a, a he bad He sent me the Tasmanian devil. He sent me the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, have, I have never seen a snake so eager to bite. Eric has a pair, and, you know, um, I'm, like, ever circling, going, like, you, you, you annoyed with those yet? You, you, you really kind of want to get rid of them? Like, how you doing? He's like, I got it. He's like, I gotta. He's like, I gotta sell some stuff. I'm like, how about them rings? And he's like, not those. I'm like, damn it, let's go away. So it's like, yeah. I, I'm ever circling. I'll get them back. It's you know. And again, like I've been looking at the Angolan pythons, which just kind of uh, for something about me and armor plated snakes. Like if it's got keeled scales or or, or something like that, I want it. And I don't a know why. A different scale <laughs> in some way. Sure. Yeah. If it's yeah. not sure. smooth, no. so you know that'd be the. So we'll do that. I got the bumpy chondro, so why not the bumpy ball python? So, you know, it works. A flat African rock python. Sure. Perfect. <laughs> or you just get a ladder oh, rat. Those are interesting enough, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're back to this. Okay. Fabulous. Keep going around. Yep. Right on. Well, I guess the next step in the usual process is to say, uh, and I know Owen and I are excited about it, perhaps me more so, uh, about our next Turpin trip, but uh, where would you guys want to go? If you could go anywhere and cost wasn't an issue and you just get up and go, where where would you like yeah. to go look for reptiles? And what do you want to find? Critical second go? point, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. well, yeah. okay, okay, well, I, I know that, uh, you know, I mean, Owen, I think you're already you're already doing it. One of the places I've wanted to see, and my wife and I have talked about how much we both would love to get down to Australia one of these days, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm already envious that you're headed that direction, because it would be it would be cool, and as far as what I would like to find, I think that would be just almost anything out there, reptilian crawling around, so it would all be, <laughs> it would all be new for me, but yeah, Australia was one of the places we've always uh, had our eyes on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna be excited just to see. Like, I'm gonna get off the plane and be like kangaroo, and people are gonna be like, "You need to chill the hell out." So you know, it's it's gonna be like that. <laughs> just, just just keep in just keep in mind that's the only continent with more venomous than non venomous snakes. So that's why I'm not allowed to touch it until Rob tells me it's okay. Owen's <laughs> <laughs> oh, taping rules. oven mitts to his to his shirt, you know. I'm getting I'm getting <laughs> oven mitts are being taped to my hands and then they're gonna have me on one of those little kid leashes where like Rob can just kinda reel me back in if I get too far. So yeah, it'll be like that. Right. The whole trip. <laughs> so Yeah. Ah, cool. Oh man. You know, like for me, the one I've yeah. been to Europe but I've never actually looked for Vipera. I think that would be awesome. To just go that like in cool. that awesome. southwestern like Europe era, you know, and just kind of look at the natural habitat of those animals. Um, you know, social media, seeing some of the pictures of herping in that area, I mean, that it's just really kind of widened my taste for that that genus, if you will. So yeah, I, I was. Awesome. Um, we have a we have a calendar competition going on right now. And one of the guys who entered in the uh, the find it in the wild category just went on this European herping trip, and he's sending me these different kind of pictures of this of this stuff that he found in Europe. And I'm like, these things are awesome looking. So yeah, <laughs> get that, man. it was really cool. So that's cool. Um, the other question we have for you guys is if you could. 
add any reptile to your collection and money is no option, what would it be and why? Ooh. All right, Matt, Matt you go first this time. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, being teased as much as you and I have on uh, a couple of other messages before, I'm going to go with those gearless monitors. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, why those? Uh, you know oh, come on, Owen. <laughs> well, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I know why, but... <laughs> yeah, cool. I mean, really kind of the, the challenge of it. I mean, you don't... We don't know enough about them. I think it'd be really interesting to explore those animals in captivity and kind of work with them and try to figure them out more in depth. Yeah. It, Besides, Owen, have I've you seen the scales on those things? I, I have. They're yeah. bumpy. Of course I want it. It's, like, it's, <laughs> it's a water version of a Gila monster. I mean, come on. It's, <laughs> oh, gosh. God, bro. <laughs> and I've heard the bites hurt just as much. So. See? Exactly. Oh, my God. You, you're checking all the boxes. It's hard to keep alive. It's pissed off. It hurts, and it's got bumpy scales. Where has this thing been all my life? That's man, all three things for you, man. It's, oh my god! In Borneo, but that's the problem. So yeah. that's, a, that's the issue. Yeah. <laughs> god. So yeah, well, and and then uh, then I would have to say one of the one of the ones, and, and Matt and I have even kind of toyed with this. It just uh, that we've kind of had our eyes on. You guys have talked about a few times are the uh, the Bolins. You know, you talked about Ari and all that, but yeah, I think that's just kind of uh, you know, I think that's that's uh, so many people's dream snake right now. So, uh, but but you know, not just the uh, not just the beauty of the of that animal, but just the overall challenge. I think even the folks that are you know bringing those in and or having those or raising those up, just the, the challenge, that's part of the excitement of this whole whole hobby. So it would yeah, be something in that range. Bolins are one of those things where, like, you you get one, then you get four, then you devote your entire collection <laughs> in life to it. And it's like, oh, my God. So it's, I don't know, man. You take the Bolins plunge, you may never come back. So, you know, I, I know, I know, I, I realize that, but they're just, uh, but you know, I've, I've thought that many a time, and you know what's funny is we always seem to make room for one more species. So, yeah, uh, yeah, we true. Haven't, yeah. We haven't, we haven't hit that saturation point yet. So. Yeah, they are, they are really cool species and gorgeous animals. Um, so, but that's awesome, guys, and. uh you know, this has been a great time hanging out with us and stuff like that. We've uh, obviously learned a lot, and I've been geeking out over all this stuff. And I already have a list of uh, right. Owen's been taking notes, writing out species and things things to buy from you guys. I to mean, fortunately, get, like you guys it. are the only guys that have it, so you know and he's definitely coming to you. So it'll be great. <laughs> and it's going to be one of the things of like you know, oh, but we we only got three eggs and we're not letting it go. Damn it! <laughs> like you know, it's going to be one of those things. So I imagine it, but um, but oh, no, and guys, go sell thirty carpet awesome. pythons and maybe that amount of money will change our minds. You know, that sort of situation. Oh, I think is basically think where we're at. Sell 30, <laughs> you think I sell thirty carpet pythons in an afternoon? Those days are gone. You know, it's, <sighs> but, uh, but no, dude, this oh is my gosh. great. This is very cool. So um. Yeah. Thanks, general. guys. Thanks a ton. We'll have to have a, a, you know, we'll check back in with you, you know, this next season because there's a ton of cool stuff there. So yeah. And I know we yeah. haven't, we haven't hit on really properly a lot of stuff. So no, <laughs> but um, 
if you guys have any contact info or anything you guys want to toss out there, you know, please go ahead and do that now for anybody who wants to come either follow you or, you know, talk you up about certain stuff, you know, go ahead. Yeah, as far as as far as me, you guys can just uh, you know I, I can be messaged on Facebook, so I'm just understand Grumbeck on Facebook, so you can always find me there. Or my, uh, you know, I throw my my email address in my ads. It's just sgrumbeck at snakeroom dot com. Awesome. Yeah, and you know, through myself, I I run dot com, and I do have a Facebook page too that has a lot of the pictures and. You know, if there's ever questions for myself or Stan, I mean, we can always answer through there, too, as well. Um, you know, Stan sends me pictures, and I always post them up there, too, as well, just to kind of show everyone what's actually going on in our collections, especially. Very cool. Oh, awesome. Oh, thanks again, guys. This has been fantastic, and we'll definitely catch up with you uh, further down the road, and uh, you can tell us about your uh, earless monitor uh, project that you guys got going on. And, uh, you know, some other stuff you got going, and tempt us with other stuff, all right? All right, man. Well, we certainly thanks, do appreciate guys. it. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, Have a great guys. one. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This is normally where Eric jumps in and says, that was an excellent show, or he's, I don't know, whatever, however hell he talks. You know, you think I'd buy after eight years, I'd learn it, but, you know, here we are. It would <laughs> so, be something like that. Yeah, I think that be. sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. I don't know. Something, something, IJ, something, something, something. Is that right? So, I'm sorry. Yeah, that one. sounds right. Damn it. Yeah, all right. So, um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> there are always no, IJs to me, Owen. Uh, thank you, but no, I'm not allowed to say that. That is not the official stance of Morelia Python Radio. <laughs> of Morelia Python Radio. Yeah, there oh, was God. there was a memo, and I have to adhere to it. So you know, anyway, I didn't get the memo, so you know, I or know at least did. that's we, what I'll say. I, we keep you on the fringe. You're a wild card. You're out there doing. You're like the you're like the field correspondent. You know, you like fun. it. Right? I do. <laughs> you guys like it when it comes. You know. Oh yeah, you, you show oh, up. Lord. You show up, wreck the place, run away. It's perfect. I love it. So, um, so anyway, Rob, we didn't uh, even have the Festivus Bowl, man. I know. <laughs> I brought that up to. I brought Maybe that up going to my forward. Dad. I brought that up to my dad. Fabulous. Like, Are you going to get a poll? And I'm like, you goddamn right I am. I'm like, we have to air grievances. So yeah, that's that's going to happen. <laughs> so. Uh, but yeah, it's been anyway. a while since Bob Rocks called called your work. I, well, I might have to. I was thinking about that this afternoon. Might have to. He, he does. He wanders through. I I told him today. I'm like Eric's gone, so he's just. He's like it's just you and Rock. I'm like just. Yes, yes, Dad. It's just me and Rock. So he's slowly just moving your name to you know from Rob Stone to Sounds Bob Pebble right. to you know. Now he's just going to start calling you Rock. So congratulations, Peb. you. Yeah, yeah, Peb. Yeah, rock, yeah. tab, whatever, yeah. you know. Yep, this is how he goes, you know. It's how it is. <sighs> All right, anyway. man, so I'm High Plane Terp on Instagram. High Plane Terp on Instagram. Same thing on Facebook, but I don't really try not to go on there. So that's about <laughs> it. Message me. I avoid that place. <laughs> All yeah, right. I try um, to, man. <laughs> smart. I mean, I am uh, rogue-reptiles.com. Uh, you can also follow me at rogue underscore reptiles on Instagram. 
Facebook is just Rogue Reptiles. Um, the website for the podcast. I should know this. Stop. Moreliapythonradio.com. If you want to reach out to us, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or show ideas or guest plans, please email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. If you want to join any of the Facebook groups, they're all over Facebook. Just search Radio. Also, please join the Morelia Pick of the Week. It's where you can go share pictures of whatever snake you got. As well as that is where you can enter for the calendar competition and all major show announcements do pop up on the Morelia Pick of the Week. That's all we have for everybody tonight. So we will say thank you all for listening and we will catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night. <laughs>